So to continue on the the, the theme of uh, helping you in terms of establishing your practice, there was a handout, which uh, hopefully you have, a preparation for practice. It's a, it's a little six-step procedure that you can do uh, each, each time as you sit down to practice meditating to help you... Uh, help you in the quality of your practice. You might think of this as being sort of like, you know, an airline pilot sits down in the cockpit of the airplane, you know, has a checklist of things he goes through to make sure everything's ready before he turns the engines on and gets ready to go. So this is your startup checklist for for your meditation. So, and and it is uh, directed towards a certain specific kinds of problems that uh, uh, seem to consistently arise. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, traditionally there are said to be uh, five hindrances or obstacles uh, to our successful meditation practice. As a matter of fact, these same five hindrances are hindrances to uh, our successful Dhamma practice in general, and uh, as you'll see when I go over them, there, there are hindrances to everything else that gets hindered in your life too. So, <laughs> and so uh, once again, we're primarily coming today from the perspective of the beginning meditator, and so one of the problems uh, that beginning meditators consistently have is because in the uh, early stage the mind is still uh, quite active and untrained uh, there can be there is this tendency for the meditator to have expectations and as a result of those expectations to experience disappointment or frustration and at the same time to take a chunk out of your day every day when you have all of these other things to do, you experience the pressure of the competition in your time. And so uh, there tends to be a problem related to procrastination and resistance that is compounded of, on the one hand, experiencing some frustration and dissatisfaction because your mind seems so unruly and on the other hand, the experience of feeling like you have so many other important things to do that uh, you really have the time to do this. So in, in terms of the classical five hindrances, this one is usually called sloth and torpor. Uh, sloth meaning laziness and procrastination. But when we examine this more closely, I don't particularly like the English word sloth as, a, as, as describing this problem. I, I think just resistance. There is a kind of internal resistance that needs, that begins to arise and needs to be overcome. The torpor part, of course, is the tendency to fall asleep. Uh, and uh, that's, that's something that we've already talked about in terms of dullness and dealing uh, with that. But it can be discouraging. And also, if you're not getting enough sleep and you're working too hard, then the physical fatigue can, uh, it can be uh, a serious 
obstacle and hindrance that you must deal with. But I think I've already addressed that one as well. So I'm going to focus entirely on, in terms of this first hindrance of sloth and torpor, the sloth part, which as I say, it, it means kind of laziness, but it's, uh, it's the resistance and the procrastination that arises secondarily out of that that I'm talking about. The antidote to that, well, ultimately the antidote to that is just to do the practice, but the, uh, uh, in order to do that, it's motivation. You need to have clear motivation. You need to reinforce and strengthen your motivation. It helps to, uh, to read things that inspire you to remain motivated to hear talks by teachers that help to motivate you. Most especially to associate with companions who help to motivate you. You know, if you, if you have friends who have uh, a long experience of meditation practice, uh, associating with them can be a tremendous uh, help in keeping your own personal motivation high. But ultimately it comes down to you, yourself, and your own reasons. And it's very helpful to review those and keep those clear in your mind. So the first step in uh, uh, this preparation for your practice to do on a regular basis when you sit down is review your motivations and also review what motivation that is present right here in this present moment which will change constantly. You know, we have, we have those motivations, those, those larger, longer-term motivations. Uh, we would like to experience some of these uh, uh, meditative states that we've heard about. Uh, we would like to achieve the uh, awakening, uh, things like that. But some days that isn't necessarily what's at the forefront of your mind, and that doesn't matter. But review your motivations and just be clear on what you're doing and why you're doing. This is very, very helpful. This will, this will sustain that, that clarity of your purpose and your intention. This particular hindrance uh, is often accompanied by a second one of the hindrances. It's called doubt or skeptical doubt. And uh, the form that this takes is that uh, sometimes we will have doubt about our, our ability to do the practice. Thoughts like, well, there's something wrong with me. I'm, I'm different than other people. I can't do this. Or doubt can take the form of beginning to question the method and practice you're using. And... Uh, thinking to yourself, well, uh, maybe if I tried this other method, that, that would be better. And some people do that, and maybe some of you know people that have done that. You know, every, every month or so, they're going to a new teacher and taking up a new practice. They tried Zen for a while, and okay, now I'm going to try Dzogchen for a while, and now I'll try Mahamudra, and, uh, you know, well, now I'm going to take up uh, Vipassana, and Oh, that isn't really for me. I think I'll try uh, samatha meditation. Maybe that's the one. Um, and this is the problem with uh, this doubt. Yeah, and you see, it's not the problem with any one of these methods. Any one of these methods 
uh, although one or another might be more suited to one particular individual, they they are all, are all effective methods. But doubt comes in there and, and plants the seed that well maybe there's a problem with this one and should do something else. Or the same thing with the teacher, you know. It's not me, I can do it, it's not the method, it's this lousy teacher. <laughs> Jump around to different teachers. The skeptical doubt gets in the way. And uh, so, and, and the, you can see how these go together, that if there's some resistance to practice, it opens the doorway to thoughts having to do with doubt. And likewise, if there is doubt present, once doubt becomes established, then the resistance increases and uh, procrastination that, well, I'll meditate later. You know, right now it's more important that I do this other thing and things like that. So uh, these are intended to help you to overcome these, these kinds of hindrances. So after you have reviewed your motivation, then the next thing to do is to decide what it is that uh, uh, what are you going to do today? What do you hope to accomplish? Now, as you go along, you may acquire a variety of different uh, meditation techniques that uh, you can use. And one application of this is that you decide in advance what practice you're going to do. You, if, if you learn two or three different practices, it is absolutely a terrible idea halfway through or partway through your sit to say, well, uh, this practice is not working today. You know, uh, kind of, uh, meditation on the breath isn't working today. I think I'll switch to uh, loving kindness meditation. It's a very bad idea, very bad idea. <laughs> Decide in advance what you're going to do and do that. Now, where these uh, 10 stages will be very helpful to you is of course you become familiar with him and you can keep track of your progress as you go along. And this is very, very helpful to you. It, partly it helps to overcome the, uh, the doubt and to reassure you that indeed you're making progress. So you, you do pay attention and keep track. You know how your meditation was yesterday. You know how your meditations have been in general for you know, the last period of time. So you have some idea of what you think that you're going to experience in this meditation today. So you say to yourself, well, you know, uh, I'm, uh, uh, my practice is uh, stage three. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll have more of a stage four practice today. But that's, you know, you, you're consciously acknowledging uh, where you seem to be in, in the stage of, of your progress and what you expect to be doing today. And that's good. You've made this clear in your mind why you're here, what you think you're going to do. And then the next thing to do is to remind yourself it might not be that way at all. Maybe you thought that you were going to be doing uh, eight-stage practice today and it turns out you're at stage three. Remind yourself that that's all right. doesn't matter. Whatever Whatever comes up, that's what comes up, and that's you're going to do the practice appropriate to that. If it turns out you have a lot of dullness today, then you're going to uh, meditate working with dullness. You have a lot of agitation with agitation, so on and so forth. Right? 
and you make uh, so you remind yourself to be satisfied with whatever does happen and whatever you you do uh, accomplish in today's practice, and then you resolve to practice diligently. This this, this is very important because. The, the doubt and the, uh, the resistance can sometimes arise in the middle of your sit. You know, it's not just that once you've managed to get yourself on the cushion that that problem disappears. Sometimes, sometimes it'll arise while you're sitting too. But the best way to overcome that is to make a firm resolve, a determination, a resolution that, that I'm not going to give up and quit partway through. I'm not going to change my practice. I'm not going to say, well, I'm just not up to it today. I'll just uh, daydream a bit or uh, plan the details of my new house or you know, <laughs> solve this problem or whatever it is. You just make that commitment that you're going to, you're, you're going to really do the practice to the best of your ability the whole time. And the, these kinds of seeds... Uh, you'll find that they're very important. They're very powerful. You you just make this deliberate, conscious, uh, uh, verbal even uh, commitment to yourself. And it bears bears fruit when need be. Okay? Now... The next thing you do is you just do a little review of your mental state and the kinds of problems that you're likely to encounter. Um, and this actually brings us to uh, some of the other of the five hindrances. Um, what we experience in meditation is a lot of different kinds of distracting thoughts that come up. and. By far the most common kind of thought that comes up, at least uh, at least for uh, beginning meditators and often for uh, in the later stages as well, are thoughts that have to do with our our worldly desires, our worldly concerns. Because. This, this is basically where our mind is uh, residing most of the time. Uh, you know, the, uh, there is what's called the eight worldly dharmas. I don't know if you are familiar with that. But these are about these, uh, uh, these kinds of worldly concern. Uh, you know, uh, pleasure, pain, gain, and loss. These are worldly dharmas. We're concerned with those things that are going to uh, give us pleasure today, tomorrow, uh, those things that we need to do to avoid pain, things like that. These are worldly concerns, and we can have thoughts about those. And these are, these are, uh, these are a commonly intrusive kind of thought. Loss and gain, getting things that we want, uh, preventing losing things. Uh, if you got money in the stock market and the market's going down, you sit down to meditate. You might have a lot of thoughts about loss and gain <laughs> that come up. You know. um, pleasure, pain, loss and gain, and then there is uh, 
fame, fame and infamy. We, we all want to be, uh, we all want to be loved and accepted and famous and powerful and influential and th this is one of the things that we want. And at, at, at whatever level we're pursuing that in our life, thoughts about that are likely to come up. And also, uh, we are very disturbed by anything that is going to cause us to, to, uh, to our, our esteem to diminish in the eyes of others, or our power and influence to be lost. And so, if there's something like that going on in your life, and in your life, you know that your mind's probably going to generate thoughts about it, right? So, so that's uh, the uh, another part of the world, the Dharma. Uh, and then praise and blame. We want to be praised. We want to be recognized. We want to be right. We want to be acknowledged. We don't want to be blamed. So if there's circumstances going on in our life that hold promise of either one of these, we're likely to have thoughts about those. Right? So what I'm saying here is that most of our ordinary daily concerns, our worldly concerns, our worldly desires are revolving around these kinds of sources of pleasure and sources of suffering that we're concerned with obtaining and avoiding. And so it is inevitable that whatever events, whatever circumstances there are that are taking place in our life at this time, that our minds are going to be processing those things and that we're going to have thoughts of that uh, of that nature coming up. And those thoughts uh, about those sorts of things are the hindrance that we call the hindrance of uh, worldly desires. So in terms of reviewing the kinds of difficulties and distractions that you're likely to encounter, you can, you can just very briefly think, what are the things of that nature that are on my mind and that are likely to uh, intrude as thoughts. And to take a moment to recognize those and acknowledge those and just note to yourself that, yep, there's probably going to be thoughts about that coming up, and when they come up, I'm just going to let them go. And you'll find it's much easier to let them go than if you, if you just wait until they surprise you. You won't necessarily catch everything, you know. Sometimes you, thoughts come up that you... But just in your preparation for practice, if you forearm yourself by reminding yourself that, oh yeah, you know, I'm probably going to be distracted by thoughts about this. That just, just that recognition and the determination that uh, when it does happen, you're going to let it go will make it so much more easy to deal with. Otherwise, you have the situation, you're sitting there, you're meditating, and then this thing that is really important to you, it comes up, and you really want to think about it. And you're struggling with the temptation to engage in the thought processes about this. But if you've already done this in the beginning, you'll find it is so much easier to let it go. So. And then another one of the 
hindrances is uh, has to do with what we call ill will or negative thoughts, aversive thoughts, irritability, anger, uh, all of those sorts of things. If you've been experiencing some conflict in your life, it's likely it's likely to intrude in your meditation. You've had a big argument with uh, somebody you work with. You know you're going to have all those thoughts about what happened and what you should have said and what you should have done and what you're going to do and how right you were and how wrong they were all that other kind of stuff. Same thing. You just recognize that, okay, that's probably going to come up. And when it does, I'm not going to be caught by it. I'll let it go. As many times as it comes up, that many, that many times I'll let it go. And then the final one of these five hindrances is the agitation of the mind that's due to worry and remorse. Worry about things that are going to happen and remorse about things that you've done. And, and these things can be interconnected with some of the other things, the worldly concerns and the, uh, and, and the ill will. But they will produce a definite sort of agitation of the mind. Uh, and so if there's that sort of thing, you just acknowledge to yourself that yes, that's there. Yes, it's going to, you know, I yes, I'm worried about this. You know, I'm I, I'm worried about this cancer examination tomorrow. You know, what if the results are positive and blah blah blah. Right? So you acknowledge that that's there, and you acknowledge that those thoughts are likely to come up. And the same thing that that this yes is a very important issue, but this is not the time for me to deal with it. And so when it comes up, as many times as it comes up, that many times, I will let it go. I'll just let it go. And so that's, uh, that's part of the way to prepare yourself for meditation by just being prepared for the kinds of distractions that are likely to come up and interfere. And then by this time, you're you're pretty ready to settle in. And this is maybe taking you a few minutes to do, to review these things. You've probably been fairly focused on this problem, or on, on, on this process, I should say, not problem, this process. You've been fairly focused on this process. So you've actually already been meditating. You've been doing you've kind of an analytical meditation here, kind of a discursive meditation. And most likely, if you've been doing it right, you've been pretty focused. So your mind is already a bit settled. You've been sitting still here for maybe five minutes while you did this. So now you settle into your body and you examine your posture and you make sure you make sure that your body's taken care of. That this is this is long enough to tell if you need to adjust your seat, straighten up a little bit. So just take a moment to do that. Check, check through these things uh, the, that I mentioned. I don't know if you remember them, but actually there are eight of them. How are my legs, number one? Yep. Make whatever adjustments are necessary. Tuck a little cushion under this knee there. All right. My spine, yep. Good. My shoulders, my arms, my hands. That's the third one. 
my uh, my lips and my teeth. Fourth one, tongue. Eyes. My breath. Now I'm ready to begin. Okay. Your mind settled. Your body settled. Your mind is already predisposed to let go of the distracting thoughts as they arise, so that they they don't have the ability, such an ability, to draw and to capture your attention. Okay. Yes. Finish the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I have a question regarding to the second one. Mm-hmm. Decide what you hope to accomplish in this meditation. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, about you know um, we said said uh, what we're gonna accomplish. Then later on remind ourselves. You know. But it might not happen that way. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. That's fine. And, and, and prepare that. Mm-hmm. And I have a question for this because I'm I'm kind of a. Uh, during the Dharma class, I'm really careful examining uh, my expectation. Okay, so I see, and I have a question: Should we set about expectation, then remind ourselves, you know, what kind of outcome is fine, or will we practice in the beginning, just don't set any expectation and, and try to uh, build this habit? Do not, because expectation is so natural for yes. us, and everything. So I need to be... Okay, that's great. Yes, and let me explain that. Really, in that second step, this is more a, a, an intellectual thing. Okay? An intellectual, just a planning. Okay. So, probably today, uh, after I get settled in, uh, I'll probably be experiencing dullness. So, what I want to do today, if that happens, is I want to try to notice earlier and earlier, as early as possible, when the dullness begins to set in, and to use the appropriate antidote. So this, this is just an intellectual planning. Okay, and I'm using that as an example. Okay, and then the next one is exactly to help keep you from allowing that intellectual planning to turn into an expectation because yes absolutely you want you don't want expectations you don't want to set yourself up to be disappointed or attached to a positive result so that's why after you have at the at the level of int- uh, of an intellectual recognition you know and th- this is based on thinking okay this is how my meditations it, this, this is not something that you're uh, unlikely to be doing anyway. It's just a question of doing it very consciously and, and deliberately. Reminding yourself consciously that, yes, this is how my last meditations have been. And so uh, if this one is the same, then, uh, uh, as I say in the example, uh, today, then hopefully I'll be able to uh, be able to recognize dullness more quickly when it arises, or whatever the particular kind of problem that you recognize has been characterizing your last few sets. But then immediately afterwards you say, but yes, I, but I'm not going to create any expectation around this. It might not happen that way at all. And whatever does happen, 
I remember I'm supposed to just practice according to what's happening today, and I'll do that. And I make the commitment that I won't become discouraged or disappointed because today's practice is, is not at the level I expected. Or likewise, and this is important too, and I'll make this point, that I, I might have some kind of uh, just really wonderful practice today. My mind is so calm and so focused and so clear. I won't become attached to that because that doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way. I just, if that's, if that's what's happening, I'm going to practice at that level. So that's exactly the purpose of this is we need to be, be able to, because we're going to do it anyway, to want to recognize how, how we're progressing. And, and it's positive for us to have that recognition, but it, and it, it provides us with a certain degree of encouragement and satisfaction. But it comes with this danger is that we will attach to to that and, and uh, we will have expectations based on that. And so that's why it's immediately followed by the conscious and deliberate letting go of any expectations that may be based on that. Okay? So you're saying is that um, you, you, you talk about this accomplish, this accomplish that uh, some difficulty but we certain participate mm-hmm. that's difficulty gonna gonna overcome that. Yes. It's not the the accomplish like a, oh I want to uh, be able to experience tranquility or highly equanimity in this meditate and get into that. It's not that. No, because that's that's definitely setting yourself up for problems to do that. Yeah, it, no, it's it's exactly it's it's based on your reflection of okay, so this is what's been happening. Yeah. So this is probably what's going to be you know, and and sometimes it has to do as much as anything with the things that come up uh, in the fifth point when we're reviewing the problems. Okay, it, there may be an ongoing source of distraction and it's just simply recognizing that, all right, today I'm probably going to be dealing with that distraction you know, in the same way. But today I hope that I can just really be equanimous about it. I can just let those thoughts come and ignore them and let them go away. It might take that form too. But that is absolutely the the point of this and thank you for helping to clarify that is is to make that determination that I won't become attached. I won't create expectations. I will accept whatever happens. I'd like to share a concrete example to illustrate the, the same point. That is when I was working at the stage where uninterrupted attention was the goal and that effortlessness was still too far away for me, it wasn't my immediate goal, then I would uh, set for myself the immediate goal of being mindful of the entire course of inhalation and exhalation. Rather than telling myself I'm going to have a wonderful, uh, blissful sit, uh, right before I breathe, I would tell myself, well, I'm going to exert all of my mental effort in seeing to that there is not even the tiniest gap in my attention as I observe just the single one exhalation and, and, and inhalation. And so by, by setting up these immediate short-term goals, but having mastered them, I could extend that into longer periods of uninterrupted attention. And I find it, that's, I felt like the practice was built up in such a way by meeting immediate short-term goals and then eventually take you to much farther places. 
Well, thank you. That was a very helpful question. Thank you for asking that. Okay, now <clears throat> let's take this to another level, particularly with regard to these, uh, the last three hindrances I discussed worldly desire, uh, ill will, and agitation due to worry and remorse. I have spoken of them now just in terms of those more immediate things that are happening in our daily lives and the kind of distracting thoughts that they generate. But all three of these uh, run at a much deeper level. We have a uh, we have such a powerful and deep-seated uh, uh, process of desire that is driving us, worldly desire. And that specific hindrance is directly opposed to our successful achievement of single-pointedness. When you come to the sixth stage of the practice, the only hope that you will have of being able to successfully ignore those thoughts that are coming up is that you have actually succeeded not just in meditation and training yourself to ignore them, to recognize them and let them go, but you have diminished the power of their hold on you in your life in general. So what I'm saying here is when we get to about that stage in the meditation practice, in order to go further, we must have made some profound changes that uh, affect the whole of our life. The same thing is true with the hindrance of ill will. We have to, in order to come to that place where the, the uh, physical pliancy and, and, and the pleasure that marks the onset of, of pitisukha, uh, and, and this is in the eighth stage where uh, we find that we're able to sit comfortably for long periods of time and we enjoy uh, uh, no pain, but rather pleasure. That will not arise if you have the seeds of anger and hatred and aversion and ill will and criticism and judgment percolating, in, in, uh, percolating away beneath the surface in your mind. It won't happen. Instead, when that physical pliancy and pleasure tries to arise, you'll, you'll feel strange sensations, creepy crawlies going up your back and your neck, you know, the burning sensations on your forehead, and like there's ants crawling on your arm, instead of pleasure. <laughs> and other things like that. You have to free your mind stream in a more profound way of the hindrances of, uh, of ill will in all their different forms. And likewise, in order for that meditative joy and happiness that will evolve into tranquility and equanimity to arise, you also have to have freed your mind stream from those deeper sources of uh, the agitation that comes from worry and remorse. Partly this will occur in meditation, that purification of mind that I was talking about yesterday. That's part of that. That 
things that come up from your past that involve guilt or hatred, letting them go is part of eliminating the uh, certain sources of, of uh, anger and hatred or guilt and remorse from your mind stream. But you have to do some work on all of these things outside of your practice as well. In this path to awakening that the Buddha has given to us, this eightfold path, it has three divisions. Uh, sila, virtue, or morality. I like virtue as, as we describe it is one of the divisions. And the second, well, it's called concentration, but it includes not only concentration, but uh, mindful awareness and also the practice of right effort. So let's just call it meditation. We've talked a lot about that part of the Eightfold Path, meditation. But what we're seeing here is that sila, is essential as a foundation, that your meditation practice is going to run up against a barrier, usually at about the sixth stage, until you've done some serious work at the level of, of sila. And, uh, and, and likewise, it'll run into another barrier at the seventh stage and the eighth stage. You know, So really, from the sixth stage onward, being able to succeed in, uh, in, in achieving the highest meditative states requires that you've done a lot of things outside of your sitting practice. You've made a lot of changes to your life. And the tools that we have to work with uh, are the precepts and also another extremely valuable tool is the practice of the perfections, if you're familiar with those. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the, uh, if, if we use, there's different systems of defining the perfections, but if we use a system that identifies six perfections, the second of the six perfections is actually the perfection of virtue. So it's very important that as early in your practice as possible, that you begin to incorporate this in. And is, is everybody familiar with the five lay precepts? I'm sure you all are. Yeah. They're a really good starting point. The first is uh, you undertake the precept to refrain from harming or destroying other living beings. And the second is that you uh, undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not freely given. Theft in all of its different forms. But it goes beyond that as well. The third is undertaking the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. And there are the obvious forms of sexual misconduct, but this can go beyond that in terms of how we affect others in many ways. And then there is the precept to refrain from engaging in wrong speech. And specifically uh, identified uh, as wrong speech are, is of course, false speech. But then there's also harsh speech. 
There's also divisive speech and there's gossip. And then in the traditional five precepts, the, uh, the fifth one is to undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that bring about dullness of mind. And it's an interesting thing that in the world today we have many different ways of dulling our minds. Uh, not, just, uh, not just alcohol. We have drugs and computer games and movies and television and all kinds of other ways of dulling our minds. <laughs> so we can extend that precept quite a bit as well. These precepts are, are uh, I, I, can't, uh, uh, I can't overstate the importance and value of them, and also the way to approach them. They're not like absolute commandments. They're like tools that you work with. What you will judge to be keeping or not keeping any particular precept will change as you continue to work with the tool, you know. If you take a carving knife, your skill will improve in carving the longer you use it. And the criteria by which you will judge something to be well carved will change over time. And the same thing happens here. What does it mean to refrain from taking that which is not freely given? Well, clearly it means not taking a gun and robbing somebody breaking into somebody's house and taking their television, stealing their car, things like that. But what else does it mean? Yes? It means not cutting someone off on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, it can definitely mean that. There's all kinds of things that can... It can, it, it can go beyond not taking somebody else's property to protecting it. You know, your neighbor's child left his bicycle out in the yard, somebody might steal it. So you can protect somebody else's property, too. How far you take it is up to you and what level at which you practice it. But, you know, uh, you're having tea with somebody, uh, with a group of people, and there's this nice tray of brownies, and everybody's had some, and there's one left. You know, do you take the last one? Or do you first offer it to everyone else? I mean, that... Maybe you'll regard that as a way of keeping the precepts, and, and maybe not. It's up to you. Nobody else is making the rules. It's just a tool. Here it is. Take it. You use it and see what you can do with it. See where you, see where it can take you. And it's true with all of these precepts: false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, gossip. Yes, with all of these. You know, as I say, sexual misconduct. But you know. That's not always gross acts. It's uh, all of our interactions have profound effects on other people. And of course, obviously, sexual interactions are some that have profoundly emotional effects that can be used and are used in all kinds of power manipulation, threat, and all kinds of other things like that. But as we practice this and we recognize and we begin to see the dynamics of interpersonal relationship, we begin to realize that there are all kinds of different ways that our persona, our being, and another person's persona and being interact. So you can extend that to take on different shades of, of, of meaning and importance too. And once again, 
nobody, nobody is setting the rules that this is how it's to be interpreted. It's a tool for you to work with, like a carving tool. But what you are car the carving you are creating, it, it is yourself. It's your own character. This, this is what you're using these tools to fashion, to be, to be the kind of bodhisattva who is most likely able to accomplish the final goal. One thing you'll notice about these precepts, the common theme through them all, is they have to do in one way or another with the harm or the potential to harm uh, other beings. Notice that? So if we were to simplify uh, uh, the, these precepts down, they come to basically an all-encompassing global principle of ahimsa, of non-harming. Of non-harming. And the ultimate opposite of non-harming, or the, the ultimate opposite of harming, rather, I should say, of, of, of harming, is, is what? It's helping. It's those things that arise out of compassion and loving kindness. So if you, if you take the precepts, where, which are a set of things that you commit to refrain from, and you follow them where they lead, they ultimately lead to loving kindness and compassion. Isn't that most interesting? If you let them, that's where they take you to, is loving kindness and compassion. So, let's look at some of the other perfections. The second of the six perfections is the perfection of virtue. The first is the perfection, well, let's look at this. The third is the perfection of patience. And if you can see how that relates to uh, the hindrance of ill will, all those experiences of uh, uh, anger, hatred, animosity, annoyance, irritability, just disliking or disapproving of somebody, being judgmental, being critical, even being self-judging and self-criticizing. Self okay? But just coming from that place of judgmentalism. The practice of patience allows you to overcome that. The practice of patience causes you to take whatever situation, whatever thing happens, whatever someone does to you, and instead of reacting through negativity and ill will, move into that place of patience and from patience to understanding. If you carry it far enough, it will lead you to the same place that virtue did. If you go from patience to understanding, it can't help but lead you to compassion and loving kindness. It brings you to the same place again. The practice of these things will free you from the hindrance of ill will, and it also will free you from the hindrance of agitation due to worry and remorse. If you live as a virtuous person, a virtuous person practicing patience, and whose patience and virtue leads you to the place of being a person of compassion and loving kindness, you are not going to have very much to worry about. 
you're not going to have very many sources of remorse and regret. And you're not going to have a mind stream contaminated by ill will in any of its forms, including particularly that of self-judgment and self-criticism, because that's one that we don't often recognize that it gets in our way. Now this other one, this hindrance of worldly desire, a tough one to overcome, because so deeply rooted is this desire to uh, obtain and sustain our own pleasure and satisfaction and the sources of that and to assure that we don't lose those things that we've attained and that we don't put ourselves in a position to, of uh, pain and loss. If you look at the perfection of generosity, this takes our concern away from ourself, from me and my needs, from satisfying my desires and, and hanging on to those things that give me pleasure and avoiding those things that give me pain. And we turn it outward to someone else. And instead of getting, we come to the place of giving. Okay. And this can help us. We have attachments. We have all kinds of worldly desires. If we practice generosity, it is inevitable that it will make us aware of those attachments, it will allow us to focus our mindful awareness on them. Remember the eight worldly dharmas. It's not just money. It's not just material things that the practice of generosity involves. Although those are very important. They're very important. They are, on the one hand, very important sources of our own grasping and clinging. And they are also very important ways in which we can help others, ease the pain of others, contribute to the happiness of others. But it, they're by far uh, uh, not the whole of the story. What are the other things that we want in life other than material gain and uh, uh, pleasure? We can be generous with many things. We can be generous with our time and our energy. We can help many people in different ways. Even listening to a person is sometimes a great way of helping them. Do you not want love and affection? This is something that you can make part of your practice of generosity. Giving love, giving affection. There is no one who wants love and affection any less than you do. How about attention and admiration? Do you not enjoy that? You have a lot of that that you can give away. And often we don't. Often we're in a situation that the person that we work with, is they are so good at what they do, but do we tell them how much we admire them? No. <laughs> we're more likely to downplay in our minds and in other people's minds their, their qualities because we're afraid that what somehow we're going to lose status because of what they are. But if we can turn that around in ourselves, if you can show admiration and respect for somebody's abilities and accomplishments and let go of some of your own attachment, this is moving you in the right direction. This is freeing you from that attachment. It's liberating you. Not to mention the fact that 
it's going to be good for that person. And it has a hidden benefit. The other people around you are going to see you in a totally different way. How do you see somebody that goes around downplaying the accomplishments of others compared to how you see somebody that has no hesitation to show admiration and respect for the accomplishment of others? So you see there's many ways in which we can be generous. We look at all of those things that are important to us, all of those things that we strive for, all of those things that we have attachment to. And we can use the practice of generosity, the perfection of generosity, as a way of, first of all, exposing to our own mindfulness what our attachments are, and then as a vehicle to overcome those, to let go of those, to free ourselves from those. And in the process, once again, you'll notice, isn't it amazing how everything leads to the same place? But in the practice of generosity, inevitably becomes the practice of compassion and loving kindness, does it not? And it leaves you as a meditator who sits down unencumbered by the compulsion of worldly desire so that there isn't this constant source of thoughts to distract the mind and prevent that single point of focus from developing so that the unification of mind can develop and so that the meditative joy and happiness can manifest and develop into that equanimity and tranquility and clear comprehension leading to the insights that open the mind and the understanding to wisdom and awakening. So, sila, virtue, the tools are the precepts and the perfections. And they are absolutely essential. Meditation by itself will not, let me repeat that, will absolutely not take you to the goal. It needs to be combined with the practice of, of virtue. And wisdom accompanied by compassion and loving kindness is the characteristic of an awakened being. And so cultivate those at every step of the way. Now the third division of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path, of course, is wisdom. And wisdom is both the foundation and it's also the goal. We need to acquire a certain degree of understanding and wisdom just to know how to do the rest of this. We need to acquaint ourselves with the basic principles, get an intellectual grasp of, of the Four Noble Truths and, and uh, the other aspects of the teaching to help us to move forward and develop the sila and the samadhi. But it's also the goal. As a result of the practice of sila and samadhi, we will attain to that super-mundane wisdom that insight that is liberating and leads to the final awakening. So meditation. Meditation is a central pivot point, and it's a very good place for us to start. But having, having made that start, having established our practice, having set ourselves the goal, then we need to recognize that you know 
we can't run on one leg. You know, the, 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 the chariot needs two wheels, uh, the car needs four wheels, so I don't know a, a right analogy, but the path requires all three of its parts. So, I've told you a lot of things. You're trying to tell me things. <laughs> yes? Um, in the spirit of this notion of positive aspects of, of sila, the, the active side of sila, there's a token that you might speak a bit on meta practice or meta bhavana, cultivation. The cultivation of metta. Of uh, meditative practice and how that fits into practice. Thank you. That's a very good idea. And we will, uh, I'll do that. What I will do, I'll, I'll give you another meditation technique. We'll do a little loving kindness meditation together to finish up here. So we'll do, we, we will do that. Um, it's a very powerful thing to do, to, to learn to cultivate meditatively love and kindness and compassion. Uh, but I do want, I, before we do that, I, I do want to see if there's some questions or comments or other things about all everything else I've talked about. Do you think uh, the more I practice meditation, Lead me faster to uh, patience because I have patience with people around me. Absolutely, it yeah, will. I can avoid. Yes, so absolutely, it will. They work together. They work together. You uh, <coughs> you cultivate patience to help overcome the hindrance of uh, uh, of ill will in its many different forms, but also as you meditate this will make that much easier. In, for, in the case of all of these things, the meditation practice supports uh, these other practices just as much as they support the meditation. So absolutely, you continue to practice meditation uh, and you'll find patience uh, becomes more readily available to you. Mindful awareness outside of sitting practice is a key though. You know, because uh, if if you if you allow the two to become separate, they'll stay separate. You you'll have good meditations up to a certain point, but you'll still have no patience in the world. So when you're out there in the world, you've got to be mindful of the arising of, uh, of impatience, of uh, annoyance, of irritability. And to be mindful of these things, it's very important to understand uh, and, uh, clearly, and so let me just reiterate, the perspective of mindfulness, uh, mindful awareness, uh, as, as appeared, compared to the way we usually experience these things. Mindfulness is not, oh, I'm getting so irritated with that person. That's, yes, you're conscious of the fact you're getting irritated. But the problem is that you've already done the worst possible thing. You've identified with it. I am this irritation. It's mine. It's part of me. The other thing you've done is you've attributed its cause 
for something external to yourself. I'm irritated, and it's his fault. <laughs> so all you've done there is reinforce the same old habits. So in the future, something like that happens, you're going to get irritated again. And you're going to blame something or someone else for it. It's this situation. It's this darn thing that won't work. It's this person that behaves in this way. Mindful awareness is trying to see things as they are. And as they are is irritation is arising. This mental state of irritation is arising. Not I am the irritation, but it's arising. It's arising due to causes and conditions, which I've created in the past. It's not arising because of this person or that thing. It's arising because I planted the seeds in my mind for irritation to arise, and there it is. So it's seeing it the way it is, which doesn't mean that it might not still dominate your experience of the moment and might even cause you to act in certain ways. But the more you examine it with mindfulness, the less it will do so, and eventually it will disappear. Eventually it won't arise. But it's seeing it clearly. And when you see it clearly, it also means, okay, there's irritation arising due to causes and conditions. The causes and conditions are in the past. The irritation has a right to be there. There's no point in me condemning myself for becoming irritated. There's no point for me uh, objectifying the irritation itself and becoming irritated at the irritation. None of that helps. It's just accepting. Ah, irritation and emotion that I have created the propensity for and now I'm getting the fruit of. And mindful awareness says, and how does it make me feel? Not very good. It, it's unpleasant. Being irritated is unpleasant. You want to be aware of that. You want to acknowledge that. This is not good. I'd rather not have this feeling. And this doesn't serve me. If you find that as a result of your irritation you've said or done something that you regret, look at it. Don't turn away from it. Don't hide it. Don't uh, quickly think about something else. Don't put the blame on somebody else. What's your fault? I said that. If you hadn't made me so irritated, I wouldn't have ever said it. It's your fault. No, you don't do that. You, you accept it. Okay? You say, look, this irritation, when it arises, it causes me to do and say things that create even more suffering, not just for me, but for others. All you need to do is see it. You don't need to draw any conclusions about it. You don't need to make any judgments. You don't need. You just see it for what it is. This is what it is. This is, what, this is the result it produced. That will percolate down into your mind. And as it percolates down into your mind, it will affect the tendency for you to be overcome by irritation in the future. So practice mindful awareness. Take the mindful awareness of your meditation and apply it to your life. Yes? For the beginner, um, it's necessary to have a special, you know, the meditation gear, or they can sit on the chair, or, you know. Find the place to sit that uh, works best for you, that's most comfortable. Sitting on a chair is no problem at all. 
you can you can achieve the deepest states of meditation and uh, awakening without uh, sitting cross-legged ever. So, uh, so. So the the okay this uh, posture, you know, here, you know, basically you, we sit here, you know, then I we feel pain for the leg, and uh, my question is, is that is necessary? For you have that training to pain your leg or something for the meditation. Is it I, I, the last, the very last part of what you said? It, it's it's is it necessary to have, for, have to, to have had the experience of overcoming, having overcome to have had the experience of overcoming pain. You know, the only way we could say definitively whether it is necessary or not is if we could ever have somebody who didn't have that experience. And I don't believe that's possible. No matter how carefully you choose your way of sitting, if you make the body remain still in a particular position, there will be pain. So everyone has the experience of overcoming pain. So I don't know the answer if if uh, it's necessary or not. Because, but it's going to be something, you are going to experience discomfort. Do your best to find a way to sit that minimizes that discomfort, but beyond that, accept the fact it's part of the process. And that not only that, but it will be overcome, completely overcome at some point. Completely, totally, and finally overcome. So reassure yourself that uh, it, it will eventually take care of yourself, take care of itself. But I don't know of anybody who's ever managed to avoid it. <laughs> and the only people that don't eventually overcome it as a problem are the ones that quit uh, practicing. So everybody overcomes it if they continue to practice. All right? Yes? Can you repeat uh, five injuries? The, to repeat the five hindrances, yeah. yes. Uh, let me give them to you in the same order I gave them to you originally. The first is called sloth and torpor, which uh, I prefer that you think of as the resistance to practice uh, and the torpor part is the dullness and fatigue. Okay, that's the first one. Second is skeptical doubt. The third is worldly desire. The fourth is ill will. And the final one is agitation due to worry and remorse. Okay? What's fourth? So ill will? Ill will. Yes. Ill will, and I always say, ill will is a, a simple label to put on it, but what if you look closely at ill will, you see it encompasses all of those things we talked about, irritation, irritability, impatience, anger, hatred, uh, vengefulness, all of these things are forms of ill will. Even being judgmental and critical are forms of, of ill will. Okay, So it's just a convenient short label, but you need to keep in mind all of the different things that it is pointing towards. Directed attention is stands in opposition 
to sloth and torpor, which means that just ultimately, if you keep doing the practice, it overcomes those hindrances. And sustained attention is spoken of as the uh, opposite of the second hindrance of doubt. And that's because if you continue to practice, all doubt will disappear. Uh, Single-pointedness is said to be to stand in opposition to worldly desire. And that's, of course, because thoughts related to worldly desire are much of what prevents us from achieving single-pointedness. But once we've achieved single-pointedness and unification of mind, our mind lets go of all of the concerns to do with worldly desire. The, uh, the experience of physical pleasure and comfort, the, the physical pliancy of the body in meditation is said to uh, stand in opposition to ill will. Because the mind stream that is infected with negative thoughts can't become settled and comfortable in, in its own pleasure and, and stability and free from pain. Pain is associated with negative thoughts. And uh, so you have to, to eliminate, it, eliminate all the negative thoughts to come into a state of, of painless, blissful sitting. And then finally, meditative joy and bliss stands in opposition to uh, agitation due to worry and remorse. The mind stream that is contaminated by worry and remorse can't enter into the state of joyfulness. The state of joy will drive out all uh, uh, worry and remorse from the mind. So these, these stand in opposition to each other. Yes? At, a, at a, which stage is the joy, like the joy sensation, or like the energy flowing through the body will come up seven or the, the meditative joy, the eighth stage is primarily concerned with the, the clear and consistent and firm establishing of meditative joy in the eighth stage. Uh, many meditators have brief experiences of joy that come and go in the earlier stages, uh, you know, but in the eighth stage is where it becomes consistent, where you're able to sit down and enter into a uh, state of unification of mind where the joy arises consistently in, in a quite strong and, and sustainable way. Okay. All right. Well, you know, this delightful period we have together is uh, rapidly drawing to a close. And I, I did want to do this loving-kindness meditation with you. So uh, this will be this, this will be the, uh, I guess, the last thing that we do together, after which we will uh, go for lunch, and then I hope that, I hope we have an opportunity to be together and to talk some more again in the future, okay? It has been a very wonderful experience to me, for me. Uh, I've enjoyed you all looking at your beautiful faces, and your questions and your thoughts and your ideas have, you know, and, uh, and the things that you've shared 
they've all been wonderful. I, I've enjoyed them very, very much. And so I want you to know, from my side, this has just, just been very wonderful, very delightful experience. And I look forward to it again. And I just hope that some of the things that I've said to you that you'll find useful and that you'll be able to implement. And, and my wish for you all is that that you do achieve the ultimate goal and as, as soon as possible. I, I'd love to sit together with the room full of you again in the future where you're, you're all arhats. <laughs> where you're all eighth level bodhisattvas. <laughs> However you want to term, determine that. But I, I look forward to that day and picture it in my mind. And that is, that's my wish for you. So let's just, let's, let's take just uh, five minutes just to let you stretch your legs so that you can sit down again. In about four or five minutes, I'll ring the bell and then I'll do, uh, we'll do a guided loving kindness meditation together to, to end this wonderful weekend. Okay?